My recollection of where we stopped was that we got through carelessness but not through laziness. <laughs> Am I too lazy to remember or too careless to have recalled? But I, when I tried to, rec- I didn't have a chance today to go back on the internet and look, but that's what I remember. Nobody seems to disagree with me. I know we got through carelessness. <laughs> All right, any questions or thoughts about carelessness or anything else? Yes, we need to give her the microphone, please. Thank you. I've got just like you know, I've got everything on the wrong side. I don't know what made me think I could put it on the left and not feel completely discombobulated. The feng shui is wrong. Okay, there uh, it is. This is going back to uh, actually food classes. I was listening to the to your talk, and this was I made a note. Swami wasn't opposed to what happened, the SRF lawsuit, but fought against opposing forces. I'm not so clear on that. <laughs> Perhaps I wasn't so clear when I said it. Swami wasn't opposed to what happened, but fought against opposing forces. Okay. I mean, whatever I said, this is what I would have wanted to say. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, sometimes meaning is conveyed by nuance of vocal tone, and sometimes we just don't say what we mean. Um, he wasn't opposed to what was happening in the sense of he didn't resist what Divine Mother wanted to send him. It just makes no difference what Divine Mother sent him. In fact, I was just listening to his, his television programs on conversations with Master, and he, he sort of said like this, you know, so what if people attack you and insult you and you lose everything? It's really not that hard to take. He just sort of said it very casually like that. What's the big deal? It just happens and you're fine at... Um, and I'm reminded of what I quoted on Sunday where Swamiji said, he refuses to let anything affect his state of consciousness. So if you oppose something, that means you have a desire that's being thwarted. This is in Autobiography of a Yogi, when, when Master leaves Sri Yukteswar and then comes back after running away to the Himalayas. And Sri Yukteswar answers him, for me to be... Uh, Master said, I thought you would be upset with me for just walking off. He said, well, that presupposes that I would have some desire in opposition. He said, I only wish for your welfare, so why would I be angry at you? How would that work together? So that's what I meant by Swami. He he didn't think it was a very good thing, I mean, in the sense of uh, beautiful and wonderful, but he didn't oppose it either. Divine Mother sent it to him, and that was fine with him. Even I remember, and it was, I think it was in the context of the lawsuit, but it might have been some other situation. Actually, it was about his health, and it was years later, but uh, he was having a host of serious problems. And then some little small thing went correctly. And I said, making a joke which did not go over well, thank the Lord for little favors. I said like that. And Swami looked at me very sternly says, I thank God for everything that comes. And he, he wouldn't even let me make a joke like that. It was like, whatever God sends is all the same to me. I'm not going to be saying this is good and this is bad. However, when forces that were not dharmic tried to take away from him his life's work and even more importantly the livelihood and the life of all of us who had given our life to it in trust um, he had to stand against those forces but for him to stand as strongly as he did as firmly and I mean the only word is he fought fiercely he did not he did not um, he wasn't uh, he did not hold back he felt that a great deal was at stake and he was going to stand up for that. But you can do all of that and not object to the fact that God is asking you to do it. 
Do you see how different those two points of view are? It's all about the consciousness with which you do it. People misunderstand and think, oh, well, if I'm just going to be even-minded, that means if they come in and they take all my things or these people are dishonest or and my wife doesn't want to live with me anymore, it's all the same to me. And that's not the same as really discerning what dharma is and standing up for it when you need to, um, but nonetheless not in your heart rebelling against the necessity of doing it. You see the difference? It's a huge difference. And these are without people like Swamiji to demonstrate the nuances of these, we can make terrible mistakes. Mm-hmm. It is, once you sort of get the feel for it. I mean, I, I have often said that even though I was really was and can still be at times a very strong proponent of Ananda and a very strong critic of what SRF has done, I always really understood it. And I, in certain ways, oddly enough, I really was less upset with them than some were. Because, I don't know, it made sense to me how, I must have been there and done that, how you make one small mistake and then you make another small mistake and you make another and another and another, and pretty soon you just find yourself a place you didn't want to go. I mean, I would like to think I would have had the humility and the self-honesty to extricate myself, but I don't know, I could always feel a little sympathetic for them. And I, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm very proud of myself for the moment when Anne-Marie Bertolucci won the verdict against Swamiji with her just pack of lies, my first impulse, oddly enough, was to feel really sorry for her. Because I thought, and I said it out loud, I said, oh my gosh, she's won? I said, that'll just increase her delusion that she did the right thing. And it'll just push even farther back the necessary realization of how completely inappropriately and wrongly she behaved, but she won. And she got money, and in the eyes of the world, she was victorious. And I, afterwards, I was so pleased with myself because I didn't really think about anything except how awful it was for her to have triumphed in such a dishonorable way. So, you know, I know just from my own experience, you can just train yourself to see things from a different angle than worldly wisdom would tell you to see it from. Does that make sense? Yeah, good question. Okay, any other questions, related or unrelated? All right. Oh, yes, Arthur. Where do you find those TV shows? Um, I'll have to send you the link. I don't actually know where it is. It's on Blip TV somewhere, and it's Conversations with Yogananda. There's 230 of them. Do you know where it is? It's uh, on the ananda.org website. If you go to videos... Swami Kriyananda's videos and lectures, and there's Is there? conversations with Yogananda. You oh, can just click there. Very good. They're all there. 235, 235, I think it was 235 television shows based on conversations he did for Indian television. The reason I'm reading them, looking at them, is because the programs are not quite 30 minutes, and they have a 30 minute time slot, and Jyotish is adding a few minutes at the end of all the programs, you know, the, to fill it out. and when I'm going to be in India, they're going to actually insert me for a few of those days. It'll be mostly Jyotish, but they'll stick me in there every once in a while. So now I'm, I'm having, having, it's not a problem, to watch 33 of those programs and make note of what's said so that I can comment on it. So I'm having a, a long, uh, intense experience of Swamiji in that book, which is no hardship. Although if I get closer to recording time and I haven't finished, I might call some of you into it. 
Okay. So, now, we are talking about, we are still in Sutra number 130, and uh, Patanjali has listed out ten obstacles. Disease, dullness, doubt, carelessness, laziness, sensuality, false perception, missing the point, instability, and backsliding. He describes these as obstacles to spiritual success. We are on number six, number five, rather, which is laziness. Okay? What is so interesting about Swamiji is he makes a distinction between two kinds of laziness. He makes a distinction. Of first, he first describes what he calls tamasic laziness. And this is a point that Swamiji has emphasized in another context also. If you're really tamasic, it's not a question of willpower to get out of it. You just do not have the awareness. Uh, you, if, you're, if you're really tamasic, you don't even know that you should make an effort to get out of it. And in, in one of the editings of the Gita commentary, Swamiji um, objected to what SRF wrote because they wrote essentially that tamasic people um, can get themselves out of being tamasic by doing X, Y, and Z. And Swamiji said, tamasic people have no wish to get themselves out of being tamasic. There's nothing that can happen except you just have to wait. In another verse of the Gita where they talk about, um, it might even have been the same verse, where they talk about the different kinds of delusion. Well, where there's the delusion where smoke obscures the fire and just a little bit of a puff will make the smoke go away where rust obscures the mirror and a little bit of elbow grease will get it off, or the kind of energy where it's the baby in the womb. And the baby in the womb, no amount of willpower will get the baby out of the womb sooner. There's nothing you can do about it. You just have to wait until the term is served, and then the baby will escape from the womb. And that's the kind of tamasic laziness that Master that Swamiji is referring to here. Patanjali is referring, and Swamiji expands on it, that if there is no will, if, if the energy is too um, dull, there's simply no will to change. And the only way that such people will um, shift at all, generally speaking, if they're really that tamasic, is that the threat of punishment, however that punishment is described, will actually motivate them to, to put out more energy. And then as they put out more energy, they will discover the inherent pleasure of putting out energy and that laziness will shift to the kind of laziness that can be overcome with willpower. So that in terms of our own selves, it has two applications. One is, if somebody is really spiritually tamasic, which is they just don't want to change. They just don't even know why they should. I've shared with you many times before, but it was such a perfect example, when I was trying to convert a relative once, who I was trying to explain to her that Desires are always disappointing in the end, that you really wish for something, and then when you finally attain it, it doesn't satisfy you. She looked me right in the eye and said, that's why it's so important to keep on wanting new things. That was like her solution to this. The disappointment would be solved by just moving on to the next. Now, that was like, there was no point. There was absolutely no point. That was spiritual tamas. As it happened, the woman was quite energetic and quite capable of having a series of desires that she worked toward and fulfilled. But the the implications of that had simply not occurred to her, and there was simply nothing more I could say. Now, the other kind of laziness, which in that kind of laziness is an insurmountable obstacle to the spiritual path. But the other, he said, is he calls it the inertia that impedes a person's attempt 
to uplift himself. And I thought that was a really good way to think about it because that is a familiar quality to us. There's a certain inertia. And he uses the example, which all of us know, you know, have a tendency to lie in bed and then spend half an hour of the hour we have to meditate just trying to decide whether we're going to get out of bed or not. It's just the inertia of being where we are. Or we're working and we keep working longer than we really should and then we, let's use the example of meditation, we don't have enough time. We're in a restless mode and we're talking and we're maybe gossiping and saying things we shouldn't say, but there's an, a force that's sort of holding us in whatever pattern we're in. And that's the kind of laziness that's really an obstacle, is the inertial force that we're trying to shift our consciousness, but we can't quite shift it because the effort required to overcome the momentum we have in a certain way, I think inertia is described as things wanting to keep going in the way that they're going, and it, there's laws of physics about how much, you have to, how much effort you have to put to shift it. That's why the masters often say, the soul loves to meditate. It's the ego that doesn't like to meditate. And if you can just overcome the inertia of outward-focused consciousness, you will discover um, the, the joy of inward-focused consciousness, and then inertia will work for you. Habit will work for you. And, and it's laziness because it takes you have to put out more energy to go in the new direction than is already being expended in the old direction. I talk about it in terms of if you're on the freeway and you miss your exit, and you're going, you know, at freeway speed, and you're in the far left lane, you want to turn around and go out your right exit, but with all that momentum, it takes a while to overcome all the force that's going in one direction and turn yourself around. I remember one occasion, I missed my exit. It took me 45 minutes to get back. And I had an appointment that had a window of time, and I missed it. Because... I turned here, and then there was construction, and then after the construction, there was a, a, a ramp that was closed, and after the ramp that was closed, I got off on the wrong street. I mean, it was just a comedy of errors, but it was like there was all this force, and I just had to persevere, and I finally got where I was trying to get, but it was too late to succeed. So we have to also know that, that laziness just isn't a question of uh, whether we're trying or not. It's also a question of persevering until our new direction overcomes our old direction. He says, um, a little effort is all it takes. I love that. Swami's so optimistic. He said, bit by bit, he'll find himself climbing resolutely out of the otherwise ever-widening pit of whatever, whatever our inertial force position is. Yes, what were you going to say? It sounds like um, laziness kind of a, applies across the whole spectrum of my existence, trying to get to a higher state of energy and a more refined level of consciousness in, in the, the second type of laziness. The second type of laziness. Because everywhere you turn, it's some old habit that's trying to keep you from rising to the next place. Um, some people have more old habits than others. And if one observes that one has a lot of old habits, then what that says to you is that you must always exert as much willpower as you can in every situation. Some people, well, it's no, it's no blessing to 
I mean, it's a blessing to be free, but it's no blessing to coast because all you do then is, is spend the momentum that you have and you're not in the habit of putting out more energy. I, there's a, this, is, this is the gospel according to Asha. I've never read this from Swami or Master or anyone. This is just my own life experience, which is what I, I call the, um, the drop-kick soccer ball theory of spiritual progress, which is that when our life begins, it's like God gives us a drop-kick in soccer. You know, they just drop the ball and then he gives it a good wallop. And it sails through the air, then it hits the ground, sometimes it bounces a little bit, then it'll roll for a while, but sooner or later it comes to a dead stop, right? And I do feel that sort of like the momentum of a previous incarnation of effort gives us a certain trajectory of power, but there comes a certain point in our life when all that momentum is spent, and if, we, if we're not in the habit of constantly putting out more energy, or if we're not able to suddenly realize that karmic conditions have shifted and something else is required, that's the point at which people begin either to get old or often oddly, after many years on the path, will leave. Because they're accustomed to a certain flow and they haven't gotten in the habit of staying ahead of that energy. For, for me, it hit in the way after the lawsuits were done and after we had just been so, especially toward the end, it was so much intensity even though we had a good time, it was still like this constant thing that we had to do, and it wasn't a fun experience to be trapped with all those horrible lawyers and all, and be, just be subject to all of that stuff. And when it all ended, I kept waiting for my sort of innocent buoyancy to return, and I waited a year and a half, actually. And then I finally realized that in all of that effort, my innocence, in a sense, had been spoiled, is the only way I can think to say it. And also time had passed, and I, I could see that if I did not make a deliberate decision to hold that state of consciousness in my life and to, and to reach for it, that I would begin at that point to lose it forever. And it, that was when I really realized that my whole life it had been natural, and it had just been like I, w- I was the fruit of previous efforts. And then all of a sudden, if I was going to have any more of it, I had to keep up. Fortunately, I, I was already well in the habit of putting out energy. I just had to identify what the issue was. But it was very clear to me, you know, that I, lazy would be too big a word for it. But I was, I was coasting on momentum. And when that momentum stopped, I was quite confused at first until I realized, oh, this is a deliberate act of will. Happiness is a deliberate act of will. And sometimes people who have become lazy because they're just enjoying the good karma that they have, when they hit that point, they sink. And they'll, they'll change gurus at that point, they'll change ashrams at that point, or oddly, as I say, they'll go back to the world because I don't feel as inspired as I used to feel, so people say. I used to feel very inspired by this path. I don't really feel inspired anymore. Well, I wonder why. You haven't put out any energy for the last 15 years. Maybe that's why. That's so you always have to stay quite with it. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's quite a lot of um, sort of subtle understandings of these things that have to occur to you in order to follow his suggestions. Uh huh. That's why these yoga sutras have lasted for all these centuries, and they remain as fresh and dynamic today as they've ever been. It's in there. It's not only in the words. It's in the vibration. 
because Patanjali's, you're, this is a doorway into his consciousness, and he was an avatar, uh, Master says, that he was an avatar, so he's still there. And all, if you're really sincere, you, you find him, and everything is about grace, and you're drawn forward by it. Yeah, it's definitely true. It's totally fun. It's totally fun. But uh, spiritual path is not for sissies. Uh-huh. Back when, uh, in, the, in the lawsuit days, when a lot of people left Ananda, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of them had, some of those people had been there a long time, mm-hmm. I always kind of thought that one of the reasons they may have left was, and I, they just, you know, it, you know, you got incarnations of this, this is a long process, project mm-hmm. here. I thought that maybe they had just reached a point where they just couldn't do any more of this incarnation. Well, retrospectively, yes, their karma ran out. But, I mean, that's the question of free will versus destiny. And, you know, if you're wanting to just say everything happens as it ought to, you say it was destiny. But I don't, as we had that discussion, I don't find that helpful. I feel like every, not, I won't say every person's action, but most of the time when people end up in a certain place, I watch them get there. It, it's rare to the point I'm not sure that I can think of a single example where someone just from night to morning just flipped out into a particular direction. For me, it's been like, because this is a, a thing that's happened over 40 years, and Swami has often commented on it, that one of the things about Ananda is that we can see the results of behavior because we're all together for all this long period of time and people are experimenting with different attitudes and different ways of being, and at first, it doesn't seem to make any difference. But after 40 years, you'll see, oh, look, these attitudes brought this result and these attitudes brought this result. And I would say in every case, but I would have to really go back, of somebody who seemed to be very committed, and I don't just mean people who kind of... Ananda is like concentric circles. And, and you kind of move through those circles more by osmosis than anything else. And so there's always a, a lot of people at the edge who are just hanging around for a while, testing the water. Master would call them students rather than disciples. And that's fine. I mean, that's just a, that's who they are. And then, and then people will become a little more committed and a little more committed and a little more committed and a little more clear about what it means. I mean, just like the conversations we have in here. Oh, wow, that really is what that means. And I've shared with you my own saga of realizing that I really had to become committed to Master's mission wasn't enough for me to be there because I was going to learn from Swami. You know, I was there on the edge learning from Swami, and then I became committed to the mission. And then during the lawsuit, I had to really take my own responsibility for it. And Swami has recently passed, and that's another level. You just kind of keep moving in and ask yourself, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And of the people who really seem to have moved through some of those layers... And we're not just sitting on the edge of the rim. Always when they ended up spinning out, I was conscious of an aberration. An aberration in the sense of, huh, I wonder how that's going to work out. You know, this little withholding, this little side of, a little bit of an attitude, a little bit of cynicism here, a little bit of, um, I disagree. You know, Swami may say that, but I disagree just a little bit, sometimes overt, sometimes just a little bit. And I would just wait to see how it would go. And it doesn't mean that everybody who had those attitudes didn't resolve them, but almost everyone who was spun out, there was a wobble. And then when the, 
you might say, when you get closer and it spins faster, it either pulls you in or it blows you out. And that's why self-honesty, satsang, company with others, you know, staying current, all these things are very important. Swamiji himself says that he was, he had nirbhakalpa samadhi, he had shanti in his vrittis, and then he argued with his guru. So we don't have to feel like embarrassed about this, and I, I always appreciate that Swami just says that. You know, Sabakalpa Samadhi, what did I say? Okay, he had Sabakalpa Samadhi, he was very advanced, and then he argued with his guru, and then it took him a long time before he was able to come in. Thousands of years. Wow, that's a wake-up call, isn't it? But all it means, I love Swami's phrase, a slip is not a fall. You know, merely to slip, everybody slips whether it becomes a fall or not, how long it takes us to, to right ourselves. It's a question of momentum and habit and whether we have become lazy. Whether we're just like, yeah, you know, that's, yeah, I know, I, it's probably not the best way to feel, but, you know. <laughs> or just a little, you know, snide, unkind, that sort of thing. Arthur. Um, falling was always sort of unclear to me. Pardon me, falling? Falling or to fall, just the meaning of that. Fall away person. from, fall okay. away from your dedication, stop get doing Kriya, um, stop following your spiritual path, stop being disciplined, um, fall into temptation, you know, start drinking again, taking drugs, having an affair when you're a married person, giving in to ego, becoming proud of yourself. Any number of those things. They're all, sort, they're all ways of falling away from what uh, you... No, excuse me, I'm, I'm not answering you correctly. I'm actually describing a slip. <laughs> a slip is when you're going in one direction and you get a little confused. But a fall is when you allow that one error to become a life direction for you. So people are going along and they have bad days. I mean, there was a very devoted man at Ananda village who had a little bit of a drinking problem and he showed up at Swami's drunk one day. And you know, but Swami was like, you know, this man is working with it, he's trying. And he just, he considered it a slip, he didn't consider it a fall. And it was just a slip and the man righted himself and was able to overcome it in very dogmatic or rigidly judgmental places. A slip and a fall are the same thing. You know, you're just thrown out. Oddly enough, because we mentioned the lawsuit, the, the core of the uh, Bertolucci lawsuit, which was a sexual harassment lawsuit, that was, it was an employer dispute. I mean, it's all in, in John's book. The core of it was that a married man who happened to be a minister had an affair with a single woman. And then when he repudiated the affair to stay with his wife, she became enraged. That, that's basically the, the sum total of it. Then when we finally got to court... The, in the hands of the legal system and in the hands of this terrible, this terrible lawyer, terrible, terrible lawyer, they tried to make Ananda seem like this horrible place because this minister had slipped and he, there were many tensions in his home. You know, it was all understandable. But Ananda, instead of picking him up by the seat of his pants and throwing him out and refusing ever to speak to him again, Instead, we tried to work with him, and when he wanted to go back to his wife, everybody supported him in that and tried to help him get back on the path. And in essence, that's what we were being criticized for. 
because instead of having standards and holding to them and having a sexual harassment policy and consequences like this, instead, we thought about the man's long-term welfare and tried to work with him and with her. But when I finally realized that, oddly enough, I got a standing ovation in this temple. When I finally realized what the essence of that was, and I'm with great fervor, I declared, I would rather we all go down in flames than become the kind of organization that can't work with our brothers and sisters and understand the true nature of spiritual progress. I was just enraged when I finally really got it. And the whole congregation stood up and cheered because it was true. I mean, that was just how loony the whole thing was. But, but spiritual organizations or spiritual individuals who don't even understand themselves that a slip is not a fall, then it's very hard to work with yourself because you make one little mistake, and with all due respect, chances are pretty good you're going to make one. You might even make one humongous mistake. You might even make a dozen or two. But it's a question of whether or not you yourself understand. I haven't changed my commitment. I've just been a mess about keeping it for now. It's a huge difference. I make the distinction between those actions I commit and those I am committed to. In other words, I'm committed to right behavior and sometimes I commit wrong behavior. But I haven't shifted my commitment. And so that just means I just put myself back and put myself back. Swami Kriyananda himself said, that's my reality, you know. I haven't been perfect in everything that I've done, but I've never given up, and I've persevered, and now I have conquered. And once again, it was like, how dare you? How dare you not be perfect from the beginning? Just complete hypocrisy and absolute misunderstanding of the spiritual path, and Swami 100% refused to buy into it. He just wouldn't hear of it. It It was a bit subtle for people for a while, because people want to, it's easier to be dogmatic. But where does that leave you? You lose whole incarnations that way. I know at the last point on that was Tara Mata, you know, Master's beloved Tara. At one point, early on in her spiritual life, she wanted to get married. Master told her it was a really bad idea. She went off and got married anyway, or at least went off with this man and ended up with a child. It's not clear whether she actually got married, but she ended up with a child realized that it was a really bad idea for her to have done that. She comes right back to Mount Washington, child in tow, and one of the more narrow-minded, probably sisters there, how dare you come back after having defied Master in this way with the evidence right in front of you with this child that you now have? She said, and because Tara was not going to be influenced, and in this way I admire her. She said, what do you want me to do? Spend the rest of my life worshiping my mistakes? Just She would would have none of it. Slip is not a fall. I slipped, but I didn't fall from the path. I'm still here. And that's, it's it's an extraordinarily important point, because if you don't really get that, um, you, you jeopardize your own progress on the spiritual path. I remember when a man in the community did something that was Less than laudable. You know, if we had put out an ideal list of behavior, it wouldn't have been the best thing. And he was very, very embarrassed. I said, you walk out of the store, you look every... The first person you meet, you look them right in the eye and you just say good morning to them. You just stand right there. And the next person you see, you do the same thing. I said, in two days, nobody will even be thinking about it. And he was right. Because Swamiji has trained us to be generous. And 
you know, it's, I don't mean to be crass about it, but it's money in the bank. We forgive our brothers today and they forgive us tomorrow. But meaning we're all in this together. It's, 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 it's one of the things that makes Ananda very, very different than other places. And as I say, we have been criticized for it by small-minded people who don't really get what it means when you say people are more important than things. If people are really important, all you're interested in is their spiritual welfare. And you just keep pulling at that and you keep pulling at that. Sometimes sterner measures are needed. There was a, a woman who really, really betrayed Swamiji is the only word for it. Oh, and, and this is again in the lawsuit context. And I said, sir, if she wanted to come back, would you take her back? Oh, of course, he said. <laughs> he said, but I would know that she was capable of treachery, so I would always be very careful about her. I thought that was just the perfect answer. I, I would, until she proved that she'd overcome that, and he said, and I, I would be suspicious. But he said, of course I would help her. Yeah. Interesting point about that. He said, oh, of course I would take her back. Because he's seeing it from a whole different, not a normal world. He's seeing it, well, it's just, this is what happens. You know, it's a long, it's the path. People make mistakes. Of course I would take her back. But I would watch out for just that point of view is so different from all the points of view you've been describing. It makes me think of that uh, saying we say so much, uh, uh, day is... What day is day to the, to the worldly man is night to the yogi. Exactly. It's very, very different. Missing the point, which is one of the ones that come later. It's missing the point. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's why at the end of the lawsuit, when we, the verdict was so unfair against us, we finally, I mean, for many reasons, including the fact that we were in Chapter 11 and didn't have any money, we just didn't bother to appeal. It's just like we'll never get justice in that system. I mean, how, how could we even begin to, to put ourselves into the legal system? It just makes no sense. And then 12 random people who don't know anything from anything, it's just, it's impossible. It's just, we just walk away from it and just forget it. Did, yeah? did Swami happen to say anything at that point about, like, um, well, we've done what we needed to do. Let's just leave it and go on. Well, I mean, we all were keen on appealing at first until we understood um, the fact that all we would get was a new trial. But he was, he was you know, we, we deeply lamented the fact that there was a blot on Ananda's name and on Swami's name especially, but we could not see a way out of it, and we just did not feel we would ever get justice in the justice courts. Oh, Swami's, you know, he, it was just like, yes, we've come what we, we did what we came to do, and now let's just go on with our lives. Uh, my memory was that Swami said, if it were me, I would continue to fight, but since it's all of Ananda that we would lose, let's give it up. I'll believe you if you say that. That makes more sense. I mean, I don't, rem- I don't think he was happy that we had to give it up, but there was just, none of us were happy that we had to give it up. There was just nothing to do at that point. The only thing about my saying that is that he's also said, if it were him, he would never have fought at all. He, the only, the only, because he just wouldn't have defended himself. He just would have let it come down anyway. But it was Master's work, and it was all of our lives. And he, he couldn't, for that reason. Personally, he would have just let it happen. There was a Swami, um, whose name I don't remember, 
who was, I believe, quite falsely accused of molesting a child by, you know, one of these loony women. And being a woman, I can say, one of these loony women. In today's climate, if you start talking about child molestation or women being taken advantage of by men, there is such a prejudice, uh, you know, against, who's against the accused in favor of the accuser. And I'm embarrassed many times. I'm not saying these things don't happen. Please don't misunderstand me. But sometimes women are lying. I mean, there was an interview with that, whoever the woman was who was Tiger Woods' mistress, you know, and then she, she got all upset because he didn't keep his promises to her. And some interviewer kept saying to her, did you ever not know he was married? And she just kept skirting the question, and the interviewer kept saying it again. Did you, did you ever not know that he was married and had children? And she went in circles and circles. I mean, it was... I mean, you, you, you set this up for yourself. You took advantage of his fame and his money. You don't have any position in which to, to cry out now. But So this, this Swami was actually accused, and he was accused by this devotee who got angry and made, made up this charge and from what I know of the man I think it was entirely false he went into court and the prosecutor just started being so unspeakably rude to him that he simply refused to engage he spent 18 years in prison 18 18 and, but he just served the time. A friend of mine would go visit him sometimes. She said he was just as gracious as if he was welcoming you into his ashram. His horoscope said that he would be in prison for this period of time and, you know, that he would be confined. Just, he just wouldn't engage. It demeaned him to be engaged and he just let it happen the way it was going to happen. Yeah. All right. Shall we proceed? I mean, that's really, it's really, that's really startling, but it was like... He, how could he defend himself against such charges? What could he say? He just thought, God is in charge. Whatever God wants to do. Yeah. Okay. Now, next one, which is sensuality, interestingly. Um, Yogananda describes sensuality as the greatest delusion. And then he says, It is an insult to your soul to believe that to be happy you need the sensation of being touched physically. You are not this body. What a statement. Swami is so bold in his statements. And yet, you know that, when you put it just like that, you know, we we have this whole picture of sensuality, especially as it relates to sexuality, which is not the only definition. But really, it's about the experiences of this body and the sensations that this body wants to have. And we magnify it with an enormous number of other realities. But it really comes down to a dependence on the experiences of this body and a a being compelled by the experiences that this physical body has. And that's really the key word here, is that we're compelled by it. And this is a great obstacle in our spiritual life. And of course, sexuality is one of the most compelling compulsions of the body after survival, after food. You know, it's just like something that the body just demands of us. And as Swami describes, it's an insult to the soul. Now, this particular teaching, among many others, and I talked about this at other stages in these classes, and it can't be forgotten, we have to fight the battles that are appropriate for us to fight. 
merely because Swami just dismisses these things. And I told you how he sat at the dinner table with 10 couples and just told us, looking at us all, I know you're all married. He kind of goes like this. He says, but once you're out of this delusion, he said, you will, just be, you will never understand why it ever attracted you. And he wasn't just talking about sexuality, but just this need to have a partner, this need to have a mate, this whole thing. Once you're out of it, he said, it just you can't even imagine why you were so trapped by it. And so it, I love the way he puts it here. It's an insult to the soul to feel that the soul is so compelled by the body. If the soul is compelled by the body, well, there you are. You're just going to have to live through it. And so much grief is caused on the spiritual path by the wrong kind of, or the wrong kind of effort to repudiate this desire. Where, as Swamiji says, I asked him once when um, many of the monastics were getting married, and I asked him, the, what's, you know, what's the, what are the drawbacks of celibacy? What are the drawbacks of, of marriage in this context? And he said, well, the difficulty with marriage, and, and by extension having regular sexual relations, is that it increases the idea in the mind that desires are there to be fulfilled. Isn't that subtle? It's just because that's the essence of that when you have this sort of sexual partnership. If you have desires, then they are fulfilled. And it even becomes, you know, part of the contract. And it's a very important part of the contract once you've entered into that. I have desires, they need to be fulfilled. And it isn't, it isn't just all the metaphysical aspects of sexuality or anything like that. It's just the thought in your mind. I want something. Oh, I think I'll gratify it. Master, when he talks about raising children... And it's very hard to say this because people misunderstand it. Don't always feed your children when they're hungry. Don't always put a sweater on them when they're cold. You know, teach them to be just a little tough. Don't raise them to think that every time they have the tiniest desire that it's always going to be fulfilled. And yes, that has to be understood in the right way. But it is true. I mean, sometimes, oh, dear, you know, what do you need? Tell me just what you need. And the children just get used to thinking, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want. And you can tell that it, you know, there's a certain strength that's required. And, and good parents take care of their children, but they also teach them, you know, this is what you need. And interestingly, this whole emotional IQ that people talk about, which is far more important than intellectual IQ, they tested it in the oddest ways those people who can delay gratification for a greater good are the ones who are the most successful. And they've, they've actually, like, scientifically, and I remember seeing a little film, and they had children, and they put the child in the room uh, with a cookie. And then they left the child alone, and they told the child, if you don't eat this cookie, you can have two. And some children didn't eat the cookie, and some children just ate the cookie. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were just really different. Some would just look, and then they just couldn't stand it. They would eat the cookie. And others, you could see them looking at the cookie, but they held off because there was a greater good coming if they could re- restrain themselves. And somehow or another, they tracked that whole thing out because the thought was in their mind, if I can discipline my desires, then more good will come to me. They simplified it for children, one cookie versus two, because they're trying to be scientific about human behavior. He said the difficulty of celibacy is that Whereas, ideally, it makes you, as he put it, lighter and lighter. 
because you become less and less identified with your physical body. It's not just the question of sex or not, or giving into the compulsion of the body or not, but gender identification is also a very uh, deep aspect of body identification. And one of the things that um, intensifies gender identification is sexual relationships, because somebody is relating to you. You know, if you're a man and there's a woman always, and especially if it's male-female in that way, I have no idea how it works when it's the same, same gender. But I know certainly between male-female relationships, there is this very conscious reality that one is male and one is female. And that's the whole essence of what it's about. So it's not only that you're not celibate, it's that you're constantly affirming that. And when you're out of that identification, it was interesting, Swami Bodhi Chidananda was visiting us from Rishikesh, and we were just sitting at dinner, and then people were talking about the fact that for Craig, there was a, the men were gathering to have a blessing for Craig, and the women were gathering to have a blessing for Erica before they got married. And he said very cheerfully, a Swami is neither male nor female, and that's why I wasn't invited, <laughs> just like that. But he said it very, you know, like, of course I wasn't invited, because I don't fall into any category, because I am no longer identified with my body, and therefore I have no gender which puts you closer to the soul. So there's, there's just many ways in which these things work. When I uh, took the Naya Swami vow and was able to, you know, give away the jewelry and all the clothes and all of that, I, after a, 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 I might have been as long as a year, I finally realized that I didn't need all those mirrors because I was no longer, you know, having to see what the effect was out of concern for others, not even as much out of vanity, is just out of, like, if I'm going to stand in front of people, I need to make sure that it's not a mess. So I covered a whole lot of my mirrors. And I remembered that when I lived as a renunciate, as a nun, I didn't have any mirrors. And it wasn't just a question then of what, what I looked like. It was that I didn't want to always be seeing my own body. And it was actually very interesting, because in the house that we live in, you know, it, we didn't build it, and the person who built it, there's a whole, one of those half walls of mirrors and it was, it's in the bathroom. And every time I would walk in and out of the bathroom, there I would be. And instead, I covered all those mirrors up. And I covered, I did keep a mirror that has a Venetian blind on it so I can lift it when I need to. But it was very interesting to me when I covered up that wall of mirrors and just kept this little tiny thing that I can only see if I really look at it. I stopped. It, it actually had a, a very real effect on just the constant affirmation that I have a physical body. And that's why it's an, insult to the, it's an insult to the soul, to bind it to this. Um, who would understand that? You know, I was watching at the wedding this, uh, this last weekend. You know, the bride had all, those, all her beautiful young friends. They were just beautiful women, all just dressed up being such beautiful women. And I'm such an old cynic now. I was impressed. I mean, and, and they had a lot of magnetism, and I was really impressed by young women these days. You know, it's, it's, they've, young women have become very empowered, I think is the word that we use. You know, they're the ones who are tall are really tall, and they just, you know, they're strong, and they do what they want. But also I thought, wow, such a short-lived reality. You know, age is unkind to women. It's usually kinder to men than it is to women in, in a very short period of time. You know, all of that will just be dust again. So, you know, enjoy it while you have it, but 
Don't get too staked down in it because it's just going to go away so fast. That's what he's trying to say to us. The obstacle is to let the soul be too defined by the body and to do those things that just keep affirming that and behave appropriately. But nonetheless, keep that in mind. Just keep it in mind. This is not, this is not really good. Even though everybody in the world tells me this is good, this is not really good. This is really bondage. And even if for now I'm bound, someday I'll be free. Won't that be nice? I remember, I remember this, I was teaching up in Seattle many years ago, like 25 years ago, and these two Hungarian sisters, I remember they were Hungarian because I believe Zsa, Zsa Gabor is Hungarian, and they were very attractive women, and they became totally, the only word I can say is enamored of me. And they were just, they were just so interested in me, and they came to all the classes I was giving, but it was kind of, it was, it was a bit personal. I could feel it at the time. And, you know, they were fine. I thought, well, let's see where this goes. When 7 a.m. in the morning, I get a phone call. They're buying master's books, and they're so excited. 7 a.m., they call. They have to come over and talk to me. Okay, all right, come over and talk to me. So at 7.15, you know, they're in the living room. I'm in my jammies, just barely there. They open up something in Whispers from Eternity, and it says, save me from sex temptation. <laughs> and they say... Is that what this teaching is really all about? <laughs> and uh, I never saw them again. <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, in fact, it does come to that. <laughs> I tried to soften the blow a little bit, but the fact was they weren't, they weren't really serious. They were just enamored of it. And they had about that much spiritual karma. You know, about four or five of my classes in that one book. But still, I just, they look so horrified, just like so completely terrified that it was anywhere in any of the books that I, you know, was not for them. <laughs> All right, let's take a brief break and then we'll go on. I, I was explaining in the break that when I, I spoke to the Hungarian sisters, <laughs> I, I tried to let them down gently. It's one of those moments, though, where you have to be honest. So I, I, was, I felt at the time that I was, appropriately, I was appropriately honest and encouraged them that everything was directional and they could sort of move at their own pace. But sooner or later, yes, they were going to encounter that fact. And that was sufficient to drive them away. But they had a minute of spiritual karma, which was very good for them. You know, and they had received a picture of a, like a very different um, vibration. And they were sensitive enough to be attracted to that vibration, even though it was very personal in the way they... It wasn't, it wasn't a mature understanding. But they actually saw the vibration and liked it, and that's very good. Some people don't see it or don't like it. And then they have a lot longer to go to get there. Okay. So, any other questions or thoughts or comments? Mm-hmm. I was reading in a... Uh, Hindu way of awakening the other day. Swami was talking about celibacy, and and he he made a very interesting point that I'd never read before. He said, um, I have to paraphrase, but he said, if you stay celibate for one cycle of Jupiter, twelve years, twelve years, then you you got it or something like that. To that point, never had. Never well, if you can that. do anything for twelve years, you have a big big step forward. That's the truth. But 
that it isn't infallibly true because sometimes people change after 12 years. Well, but there's, there is validity to that fact because you're, you set the direction of your life. So, I mean, let's say it's true. Master, everything is in 12-year cycles. It's very important. What I'm actually saying is you're never home free to have Nirbhakalpa Samadhi. <laughs> That's actually all that I was really thinking. <laughs> okay. Um, obstacle number seven is called false perception. And he says, is more common than many people imagine. And um, he, he says quite simply that false perception can be overcome best of all by self truthfulness, which is to say when people challenge your perceptions, you need to be extremely open to listening. That's what he's really trying to say here. And what, what locks us into false perceptions is that when people challenge us, we just harden into them. And that doesn't mean, and this is, these are one of these razor's edges, because people who do not have your best interest at heart, who are really just advocating their position and have no under, real understanding of you, or love you but are not wise enough to really guide you correctly, will often challenge what you're doing or challenge what you're thinking or challenge the way you make your decisions. So you cannot just say, if anybody challenges me, I have to take them seriously. But anything that challenges the perceptions that you have, you have to be willing at least to consider. And, and not, if you hear yourself just you know, trying to beat them away, that in itself is a sign. You don't have to necessarily acknowledge to them that you're questioning, but between yourself and God, you have to ask the question always. Swamiji is often is fond of telling the story of this woman, and I was part of the exchange, so I remember. There was this woman that he called slightly foolish. She was foolish, not in the sense that she didn't have a full intelligence, but she was filled with false perceptions. <laughs> she was just quite given to... Um, well, it, is it later? Just hallucinatory visions or just little tiny experiences that she would blow up into enormous insights and so on. And she was silly in that respect. She just wasn't wise. She was very convinced of her reality and she told Swami that she had an important message for him and I was his appointment secretary. So I said, well, she really wants to see you and he, he was always busy. She wants to come and she wants to come at this time and his, his response was to roll his eyes, and I rolled my eyes too. I said, sir, she has, a, a, she has an important message for you. And we both sort of spent a, you know, a moment there imagining what that important message could be. And then Swami corrected himself. He said, whenever I think that someone has nothing to teach me, he said, I'm always wrong. So he had me make an appointment for her. And she came, and she told him something that he really felt he needed to know. And it was about the direction of Ananda and taking more seriously. I think actually it was taking more seriously Master's predictions of hard times or something related to that. This was many, many years ago. But she essentially said, you're not doing what you need to be prepared. And it was very important. Swami took it very seriously. And it came right through there. And he, you know, out of the mouths of babes, you have to always be willing to hear the truth. So it's that, it's basically if we started teaching about the chakras, it's like the first chakra is earth energy and you have to be solidly grounded in what you know you believe and you have to be very loyal to it. But the second chakra has the water element. And if you just have the first chakra, then you're rigid 
And you can't move with the times. You can't hear guidance when it comes. You have to balance the earth element with the water element, which is adaptable and is able to flow wherever it needs and to assume the shape of whatever contains it. And false notions happen when we become dogmatic. But we can be firm as long as we're willing also um, to be fluid because our loyalty is to principles and not to forms or to to our own opinions. You see the, the sensitive balance point there? So that's what he's suggesting here. Somebody tells you something, stop a moment and ask, is this correct? You you shouldn't be wishy-washy. See, that's the problem of water. The water element is that, or or as Swami says, to be so open-minded that your brains fall out. You have to be firm in your convictions. But false notions are an obstacle. And if you find that you're always running up against... That Swami talks about the difference between being having willpower and being pig-headed. Pig-headed is a very interesting phrase that I'd never heard before until I heard Swami use it. And there are certain people who are pig-headed, which is they just get a notion, and no matter what you say to them or what evidence there is to the contrary, they're just going to do what they're going to do, and they're not at all in tune with what's happening around them. And they think they're being loyal to their principles, but that's when it becomes a false notion. And that's why he says... It's a debility more common than many imagine. Because to be genuinely receptive is not easy. So then what follows from that is missing the point. Which, uh, when I first heard missing the point, I said to Swami, there's actually a a Sanskrit phrase which means missing the point. He says, most definitely. And missing the point, he puts it this way, allowing the problems of the moment to make one forget why he embarked on the spiritual path in the first place. And that's, it also can be mistaking the path for the goal. Getting a false notion leads to missing the point, or having a false notion causes you to miss the point. You know, I need to you know, have my avocado every day, and I can't have more than one meal. And you just sort of miss the point. The point is not to set up all these little rules as an example and follow them like this. The point is to love God. And sometimes we just get over here and we get so fixed on some aspect that we miss what's really happening. Or the way he puts it is that we just focus on a detail. It has to be done this way. This person was wrong. You know, in the course of people's relationships with Ananda, people will be going along and they'll just be doing beautifully. And then they'll have an encounter with someone. You know, somebody's fault plays into their fault. And they'll have, they'll have a, a, we don't usually have altercations, but somebody may be rude to you or thwart your ideas or do something that you think is unforgivable. And then all of a sudden the whole path is in question. How can I be in a place where people are like this? It's the same thing I was saying earlier about we work with each other. And I, I used to sort of rush in and try to fix everybody's karma. And now I just say, look, you know, yeah. What are you going to do about it? It's, it's your karma to meet such a person, and it's their karma to be like that, so what are you going to do? I'm, I've shared with you many times when someone was intensely complaining about another person. I said, let's invite them into the center of the green and let's execute them. Wouldn't that be a good idea? We can either shoot them or hang them, whatever you would like, and then you won't have this problem with them anymore. 
Like, what alternative is there? This person is part of the spiritual path, and that's what they're like. And you, you miss the point when you, when you forget that I'm here for God. I'm not here to be pleased. Because we keep referring to the lawsuit, I'll go back to that again, in that whole insane cycle where that woman was accusing Ananda of being such a terrible place because, you know, a man, because, well, to be perfectly frank, she seduced him and he gave in. And uh, then she was talking about Ananda needs to be a safe place. And everybody was mouthing those words. Yes, it needs to be a safe place. People need to feel safe when they're here. It was one of those things that went on for a while. And I said, no, not at all. Ananda, you should feel totally threatened at all times. Your ego should absolutely be on the line the whole time you're here. The last thing we want this to be is a safe place where people can bring all their delusions and nobody will challenge them. Like, who would want to live there? But that was actually what was being said. And that's, again, that's missing the point. This should be a place where everybody can just be whoever they are, whatever they feel like being. They should always be supported in what they feel. No, oftentimes they should be totally contradicted because that's not the point. We have to be really careful about that because we can easily, it's very, very easy, just like false notions, it's very easy to fall into that. A woman challenged me once also. This was not quite as... Well, it was pretty close to the Hungarian sisters, but not quite, as, quite, not quite all the way there. She said to me, I have the feeling that Ananda does not really support family values. I said, not above the search for God, you're right. You know, it's not the end of our path is not to have a happy, harmonious family. The end of our path is to realize God. Let's try to have a happy, harmonious family because often that is a necessary step along the way, but no, it's not the point. And that was very disturbing to this person because for them that was really a primary value and it was, it was unnerving to think that we didn't support that and we don't. We're not against it, don't misunderstand, but it's not the point for us. And, and when people have, as Swami says, you have lots of troubles, lots of hard things happen and then you think there's, it's not working for you. No, no, it's working perfectly. When I would teach Meditation One, I would tell people at the end of Meditation One, you know, a lot of people who are very enthusiastic about meditation at the end of the first series of classes do not continue. And I would list out reasons why they quit. And one of them is, is that it begins to work, which sounds impossible, but meditation is an increase in awareness. And sometimes when people begin to meditate, they increase their awareness and they become aware of realities about themselves, realities about the life they're living, realities about people that they were not willing to perceive before. And having that increase in awareness sometimes is no thank you. I think I'll just go back to where I was. That's really missing the point. And on the spiritual path, if you're just becoming aware of more truth, that is the point. And if that's unpleasant truth, well, too bad. That's the point. And it takes a certain amount of courage. That's why in the other classes I gave, first quality of the devotee is courage. First, most important quality for the devotee is the courage to expand your awareness, to see what's true, and not to flinch. That's the point. Whatever is true, as Swamiji said to me once when I was weeping over the perception of one of my own weaknesses, well, he said, this is good news. You were putting out no energy to overcome it, now you can. Just a complete flip from my sense of despair over my never-ending shortcomings. Oh, oh yeah, I guess that is the point, isn't it? 
So you have to always just keep coming back. Why am I here? Sister Gyanamata, I've been rereading her book, God Alone. She's just over and over she says that. And she said that was her motto from the beginning. Why did I come? I came for God. I did not come for ego balm. I did not come for comfort. I did not come for position. Why did I come? I came for God. And that's why she put the sign God Alone up in her room so she could always see it. It was so she wouldn't miss the point. What is really happening here? Why am I here? So an obstacle is missing the point. Okay, any, any comments or thoughts on that? The next thing he says is instability. And he talks about that. Instability, he means instability of your mood. He doesn't mean, you know, craziness. Although, actually, uh, I asked Swamiji once. He said, oh, yes, you know, a, 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 a mental, uh, well, what, what mental, mental instability, mental, mental illness, just checking out. Because a friend of mine, two friends of mine, three friends of mine actually had um, break a break from normal reality, and in all cases, I felt it was a response. It was a spiritual response, and in this sense, I don't mean an uplifted one, but it was a response to spiritual influence. And Swami says, "Oh yes," he said, "that's a stage on the spiritual path." He said, "Almost everyone, everyone goes through it, where you actually see the task in front of you." And you realize what a heroic effort is going to be required and you just decide that you're just going to check out completely. And you just separate yourself even from normal reality for a while while you kind of get your nerve up. I know I've been there. You've heard me talk about how when I, before I found Swamiji when I was just so uncertain about my future because life just seemed so meaningless and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I considered having a nervous breakdown because that seemed like kind of like where I was going. And I could just feel the whole cycle of a nervous breakdown. That it would be dramatic for a while and it would draw a lot of people in and then eventually I'd have to go somewhere and recover. It would take a really long time and when I came out I would be exhausted and finally I would recover from that and then I would be standing exactly where I was standing. (laughs) I could feel that I would be standing in front of the same window looking out the same scene, having exactly the same perceptions and it was just like, it's not going to work. And, and in, in retrospect, and even at the moment, it was like, I know that one. Been there, done that. It won't solve the problem. And so he's not actually talking about that kind of instability, except in the extreme. But he's just talking about being even-minded. Just not allowing ourselves to be tossed around so much by the events of life. This is Swami's statement. I refuse to allow anything to affect my state of consciousness. I got to play, the, I've had the opportunity to play with that a lot over the course of this summer because of this effort to buy the farm. And the, the project has been very interesting. We were, we were just certain from the start that we could succeed in doing it and we've you know, pushed through with that. And you know, many different things have happened and that have, um, well, I, I can't say they ever seriously threatened because we never even entertained the fact that they seriously threatened it. It was always the possibility that we wouldn't win the bid, that something would happen. and So many times there was a temptation to become tense about it. But then I, I literally would think, well, why should, why should I allow this to affect my state of consciousness? I didn't have that phrase exactly. But what, what, what does this have to do with me? It's what I'm completely engaged in. It's my responsibility. It's a very important achievement. But on the other hand, what does this have to do with me? 
Do you understand what I mean? What does this really have to do with my consciousness? It was a very interesting exercise and one that's helped me enormously since then just because there's a tendency to become anxious. But what does this have to do with me? It just has to, it has to be dealt with. But why is this about my consciousness? If I don't make it about my consciousness, it simply isn't. And it's not as difficult as you think, to quote Swamiji. Uh, you just have to really realize that there are two realities. What happens to you and your state of consciousness are not the same thing. And when you can get that really deep into yourself, then the kind of instability that is an obstacle on the path, which is where the things that are happening externally affect your state of consciousness. You see how that could be a bad idea and be an obstacle on the path. And then the last one he describes as backsliding. I love that phrase. I mean, are these Sanskrit words missing the point? Backsliding? I presume that they are. And he says this happens when people's devotion diminishes, when they begin to, to lose heart. They, they begin to live less in the heart and more in the ideas of things. That's why Master's answer to every question, love God, do Kriya. You know, do Kriya in the sense of give yourself the experience. And to every objection, just love God. Where there is love, we see reasons for unity. I love that phrase. Where we see reasons for unity. Where there is love, love gives us reasons to see unity. Where there is a lack of love, we see division. And whenever we begin to see division, us separated from our path, us separated from our brothers and sisters, us separated from our own aspirations, diminishing of devotion. And that's why satsang is so essential. That's why people's you know, decreasing participation as years go by, none of this serves us. Because if, and that this is my, why do people quit meditating? Because they don't renew their energy. They just imagine that the, the momentum they have will be enough and they're, they're not renewing their energy from anywhere. I mean, devotion is one of the things that renews our energy, but if we love it, we keep doing more of it. And so we don't, we don't go for satsang. We don't uh, expand our awareness of the teachings. We don't go for kirtan. We don't constantly express our gratitude. We, we let the heart become dry. When the heart becomes dry, we're not motivated anymore. And then all of a sudden, as he says, we just let go. And it's very sad. I mean, I've seen people many times, you know, they, they start out with a certain aspiration and then they lose it. And they don't, as a rule, look better for having done so. You know, it just doesn't serve us. And, and Swami talks about people who would leave, leave Master's ashram and he'd see them later and he said just all the light was gone out of them. And we've seen that. You know, people go away and it's not just a question of becoming distracted. It's truly abandoning it. Many people become distracted but in their hearts they never abandon it even if they go away for a couple of decades. They never abandon it. But to truly abandon it is when you can't remember. The vibration has to be constantly renewed. It's very subtle. And when you lose the vibration, you can't remember why you were doing it. Oh, yeah, I used to go there. I had one man. It was so sweet. He'd been here. Now that we've been here for over 25 years, we've had people who are very active, and then 15 or 20 years can pass. And one man showed up like that. And he said, nothing in my life has been working and I tried to remember the last time I was happy. 
It was very poignant. He said it, it was when I was here. And he, he, he tried to reinstate himself. He wasn't able to at that point. He lost. He wasn't able to hold it as tight. But I just always remember that. Tried to remember the last time I was happy. I think it's really good to scare the bejesus out of ourselves a lot. Swamiji, one of his recipes for how do you, how do you have success on the path, he says you constantly remind yourself that this is a matter of life and death. And he, you, know, you have to understand, he's not meaning it dogmatically. It's not a matter of heaven or eternal damnation. It's just you constantly remind yourself why you're doing this. Why am I doing this? And you do those things that cause you to continually love it. You try to be in the places where that love is renewed by whatever means inspires you, but just constantly renewing it. Otherwise, backsliding sets in. And those are Patanjali's ten obstacles. Okay? Any questions or thoughts before we call it a night? And we get to actually move on from this one. There are so many lists in the Yoga Sutras. We have another one next time. <laughs> not, not ten, though, so... But these are just all of these different factors. And it's nice to fix them in our minds because then when they assert their ugly little heads, we'll recognize them. Oh. Some random phrases. He, he means exactly what he says. Exactly what he says. And it really works. Okay, great souls. We are having... Oh, no. Next week is Spiritual Renew Week. No class next week. One class the following week, and then I am gone to India with Shivani for two or three Tuesdays. Might even be three. So we're going to do one more class. 